0: Welcome back to another City of Reading podcast. Today, we talk about the difference between accessory dwelling units or ADUs and short-term rentals. One seems to have the community excited to build and the other is a hot topic for Reading residential neighborhoods.
1: Lily Toy, Reading planning manager, breaks down the rules and regulations behind both of these topics and helps dispel some common misconceptions.
0: So if you're frustrated about a short-term rental in your neighborhood or excited to start that backyard side hustle, this episode is for you.
2: Hi, I'm Lily Toy. I'm with the City Writing Planning Department, and I am the planning manager here with the City. Thanks, Lily. And we are here today
1: to talk about ADUs and short-term rentals and the differences between those two and what they are and how the community is currently using each one and some of the rules and the regulations around those things. So first question, can you define what an ADU is versus a short-term rental? How are those two things
2: different? Yeah, I mean, there are alternative housing. One is more for, you know, your visitor, which is a short-term rental. And an accessory dwelling unit, ADU, is for long-term. And those are typically smaller type dwelling units. That's typically on a property that already has a single family house. So one is short-term, obviously short-term rental. And ADU is a long-term. Long-term is considered 30 days or more. And so short-term rental is rented out for less than 30 days.
0: Great. Hey, thanks. And, and maybe we'll touch on ADUs first and then go into short-term rentals. With regard to ADUs, what are some of the advantages for a homeowner when building an ADU or when thinking about possibly constructing an ADU?
2: Good question. Well, obviously you have you know your, your main house and there's two types of ADUs. There's a, you can use a space within your existing house, such as a garage, an existing bedroom, something like that. And we have what we call a junior ADU. A junior ADU basically is something that you can use without a bathroom. By state regulations, you're not required to have a bathroom. You do have to have some sort of efficiency kitchen, and that's not even defined by space. Basically, efficiency kitchen could be as simple as a hot plate and a microwave, something to cook some food up on or warm up food. And typically, these type of junior ADUs, let's say you use a garage, it is limited to 500 square feet. And typically those type of rentals are rented to somebody who you might know, because if you're not providing a bathroom, it might be just as simple as your grown child that's in the house, right? Um, but you want them to have some independence. A full ADU, accessory only unit that's detached from the house, um, is limited to a 1,000 square feet. And you can provide, it has to have a full kitchen, so it has to have some sort of cooking range. Um, Of course, sleeping quarters, right? It could be as simple as a studio apartment. It depends on the layout you want, but it does have to have a bathroom and it does have to have a full kitchen limited to 1,000 square feet. Here in the city, we want to give some incentive to homeowners to put in ADUs rather than You know, there's a huge expense, right? When you're doing something like that, you have to hire someone to draw plans and things like that. And we went ahead and got a grant through the state and we have five plans that's already gone through the plan check stage. All we really ask for the homeowner is to pick one out that they like that fits on their lot. We have a variety of different sizes and they come in with a site plan and we make sure that it fits the setbacks that's required. And then we give them the plans and they can give it to a contractor to build. So there are five existing plans. is on our website under accessory dwelling unit under the building division webpage.
1: And Lily, I don't think I was aware that there was such a thing as a junior ADU, which is
2: so the junior is technically attached to a home, correct? It has to be within the existing space of a home. So you wouldn't be able to add on a junior ADU. Got it.
1: So that wouldn't qualify as an ADU. But if you already had an existing space like a garage and you turned that into something, that would be a junior ADU.
2: Right. Or if it was a den or something like that, you could make more private. You could convert that into a junior ADU. And the limit is 500 square feet.
0: And Lily, you mentioned a little bit about there's five plans that have been approved by the city. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That seems like a great resource for folks. I don't, is that a unique resource the city writing offers? Is that kind of the norm that, that cities offer with these pre-approved architectural plans? And how does that work cost-wise and with also the cost for permitting and things of that nature?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think we are somewhat unique. We've got ahead of the ball game and got these started. So we hired two architects and uh, they came up with five plans. I think we have six more on online coming soon. They're not done being plan checked right now, but, but yeah, they vary from, I believe the, the smallest size is 560 square feet. And I think our largest one is just under a thousand. There's one that even is two story. Two of them are very convention, conventional construction, very affordable the other three are more like, you know, not a standard pitch roof, so it's a little bit more costly. But certainly, yeah, it is. You can look at the design and the floor plan of those on that webpage. And if you're interested, we can, you know, show you more of the construction drawings here at the city of Reading. You know, at the building department, work out a site plan that might work for individual lots.
1: And I, I just want to clarify kind of some of the advantages of an ADU other than having an additional space. Does this increase property value? Does it increase your property taxes? Why would somebody build an ADU on their property now? Like what makes it a good time to do that?
2: Well, a lot of it is, you know, the state really was behind pushing the rules for making it a requirement for each jurisdiction in California to have some sort of ordinance for ADU because it's just the housing. There's there's a lack of housing in California not necessarily here in Reading, but all over in more of the urban areas, but that drove for the state to push for it. But even prior to the state requiring this in the city of Redding, we already had what we call the second dwelling unit ordinance, which is very similar. It was uh, much more restrictive. You actually had to live on the property and be a homeowner, either living in the dwelling unit, ADU or in the main house and have control of the property at all times. Currently through 2025, you can build one on an investment property and not have to live there. And you're grandfathered in that way. It's not like in 2025 if that's lifted, you've got to move on to that property. So there are some advantages right now through the state that they want to provide and fill that gap of the housing need. Um, as far as taxes, yes, I'm you know I'm not in the, the business of you know being the tax assessor, but I, everything you do when you improve your property increases the taxes, right? But also it's an income generator for the homeowner. If I bought one and put one on my lot, it would reduce that mortgage payment. Maybe my taxes might go up, but overall, that mortgage payment would be reduced on my share. And so I think there's a lot of advantages to it. And uh, so this is a win-win, I think, for homeowners and also for you know renters, particularly today, where the cost of housing is very expensive and rent is going up. These units, because of their size, is affordable.
0: Lily, you mentioned that ADUs are more often than not used for long-term rentals, and the short-term rental situations are are more for visitors. How does the city monitor and enforce that? I'm guessing that through the permitting process, your department's able to track what ADUs are out there across the city, but how are policies enforced to ensure that those ADUs are indeed being used for the long-term renters versus the short-term options?
2: So actually, the state regulated the use of ADUs. They cannot be used for short-term rentals. And in City Reading, to operate a short-term rental, you actually have to come through planning to get a permit. It's called a discretionary permit. It's renewed annually. We have a company that we've hired that can monitor who is actually advertising short-term rentals. So we know who is operating legally and who's operating illegally. We try to get those folks who are operating illegally to come in and get that permit. And if they comply with the rules and regulations and are able to fulfill those rules, then they are typically issued a permit. They pay their business license annually, and they also pay into what we call the TOT, which is a transient occupancy tax fund in that the city, the finance department manages.
1: And that might be a good segue to move into short-term rentals and talk about that piece of things. So these are like Airbnbs or vacation rentals where people are just staying for a weekend or maybe a week at a time. And if those can't be ADUs, are those
2: essentially like rental properties that are just short-term rentals? Well, I mean, a homeowner has a variety of choices now, right? They could say, I want to rent it out long-term for 30 days or longer, right? Go through a month or lease or whatever, or a year lease, something like that. That is long-term rental standard. We don't regulate that at all. It's if they start advertising and renting it for less than 30 days. So if they say 29 days or less, that is considered a short-term rental. That's when you need to operate within confinement of those short-term rental rules, whether it's an ADU or not. Obviously, if it's one that was built prior to 2021, then they can use it for a short-term rental if they want. However, most people would say, well, can I, can I not? Our ordinance is very restrictive as far as what can be used as a short-term rental. It has to be a single-family house. So our ordinance restricts that ADU to be rented out as a full short-term rental. They can operate, obviously, a short-term rental. That's the only thing they can do in that additional unit if it was built prior to 2021. The state regulations, are grandfathered it.
0: And, and obviously, short term rentals, that's kind of a hot topic statewide right now, maybe even nationwide, but especially here in California. I know some cities, some of the larger cities down south in the L.A. and San Diego area and San Francisco obviously have some some pretty strict restrictions and policy changes uh, around the short term rental industry. What's Redding's official policy on short term rentals? And, and do you see that changing moving forward based on the current situation with the housing crisis here in California?
2: Yeah, short-term rentals is a really big hot topic, right? Because uh, some people view it as like a hotel. It's a commercial industry. Why would you even want that permitted in a residential neighborhood? Particularly one that, let's say, is a cul-de-sac. You got kids playing around. Why would you want strangers coming through your neighborhood? This is a nationwide issue. I think it's coming up to everyone's top priority is like, they want this addressed by their local jurisdictions. They feel that they don't, they're uncomfortable with, having this continual uh, round the clock of unknown people in their neighborhood. And that's the number one concern, I think, is safety, right? And two is who's really policing this? The jurisdiction approves it, whether it's a discretionary permit or not. In some jurisdictions, it's just as simple as applying for a business license. As long as they're in the right zone, they get to pull out a business license, pay their TOT, and go ahead and operate. Other jurisdictions have gone the other way they have outright prohibited. And so they're not interested in that because there's this balance of what other type of transient uh, housing do they have? So let's say let's say Carmel, right? Carmel, you go visit, they have existing hotels around, but they really don't want this infiltrating into their neighborhoods. So they may have outlawed it, right? I'm just using that as an example. Here in, the, in Reading, How this all started was that there were illegal operations. And this started probably about seven years ago. And the only thing that was similar to that type of use was the bed and breakfast in our code. We didn't have anything that was a VRBO type of thing. And bed and breakfast where you actually serve breakfast, right? We've all stayed. Most of us stayed in those. And so we said, well, if they're going to operate illegally, we'd like them to at least pay their TOT, get a business license so they can be regulated. And so that's where the ordinance was developed for the short-term rentals. And and it hasn't changed too much since then other than we really want to regulate you and we want you to know what the rules are before you decide you want to operate. So we have a rule of something like 15 rules. One of them is for every bedroom that you have in your house, you have to have a parking space on your property for one car, right? So if you have a four-bedroom house, you have to show us that you have space on your property to park four cars. If there's no way to accommodate for that, then you cannot operate short-term rental. We don't even want you to apply until you figure that out. So let's say some people say, oh, I wasn't going to use my garage. That's why I'm not counting those. I go, well, if you really want this, you're going to have to clear out your garage and allow your tenants to, to park in your garage. So those are, that's the biggest one because the biggest complaint is they're parking all over the street, All right, We have a We have a neighborhood. Everybody should be parking on their on their property, and that becomes a policing thing. And that was one of the issues that I think homeowners have in the neighborhood: is why are we put in a place of policing these short term rentals? Obviously, if they're not a good operator and we continue to get complaints that they're not following rules, one of the rules might is that they are not allowed to hold any type of parties outside than the owner hosted party. So that means a tenant a short-term rental, cannot throw a party. Okay. And let's say they do. We get complaints continually about them operating parties. Then when it comes for their renewal, we don't renew their permit because they have not been a great operator. The other issue might be, you know, that they have all these guests that come. Well, our rules are pretty defined about just having the tenants park on site, but we don't have any rule about visitors having to park on site. So, If my sister was staying here at a short-term rental and she says, why don't you come over and have dinner? Well, I've got four grown boys. We all go over, we're driving five cars, right? There's no rule about us having to park on the property. So we park on the street, right? And anybody can park on the street, right? So that's some of the battle there is there's this constant rollover of people. Don't know if they're, you know, bad people or not. And three, they're parking all over our street. Those are the three main complaints of why people are against short-term rentals. Um, you know, they feel that we have a hotel industry and um, they're taking away business from the hotel industry. And, um, but this is alternative housing, right? A lot of folks have uh, two families that may rent a house and uh, they're able to meet those rules of not exceeding two adults per room. So let's say it's a family of, of you know, four and another family of, of four and they have a three-bedroom house. They're, they're fulfilling are fulfilling. They're inside those rules of, oh, we have four adults. We don't have more than six adults in this house. So you have a conglomeration of families in there. So I understand the issues. And however, you know, there are other things that we can probably suggest to council. And we're thinking about those. Um, Some communities have actually um, put a cap on the number of uh, short-term rentals allowed, permitted at any one time. And I've just kind of read other ordinance and how they're restricting it. And so I think that, you know, this is an evolving regulation as we, you know, uh, work with it, work with this industry. How can we improve it? Do we outright prohibit them? Um, maybe we need to tighten up our belt and have more restrictions. And still maybe there's an equal balance, a win-win for, for everyone in, you know, that's in our community. So. We don't know where council might go with this, but certainly when we do, we're, we're slated to be on their agenda in the next couple months to report back to them about just the status of our short-term rentals, numbers we have, things like that, and maybe some suggestions on how we can have a win-win type ordinance that could meet some of the concerns of our our constituents.
0: And Lily, within that policy, are there things in place with regard to short-term rentals around schools or or places maybe where children gather? Do some policies address that piece of it as far as location of short-term rentals within the city limits?
2: No, a short-term rental ordinance just basically says it's allowed in a single-family house in any unit in the downtown area. So there's no uh, distance to schools or any type of uh, sensitive type uses.
1: And Lily, this feels like it's kind of a nightmare to regulate from the city's perspective. Are you mainly just getting complaints um, from neighbors that are alerting you to either somebody using their housing as a short-term rental and maybe they aren't um, permitted to do so or somebody who's permitted to do so but isn't using it wisely or their guests are are, um, you know, not being good tenants. How How is the city, is it mainly just complaints that's, that's alerting the city to issues or do you have some kind of proactive enforcement?
2: We have complaints on both ends, right? Because we don't all know, maybe they're advertising on some new website that our contractor isn't looking at and they might say, hey, I want to report that there's this constant flow of people. We look up to see if they're even in our system and we go, okay, well, We'll go ahead and contact the neighbor, and we'll see. And we'll contact the property owner and see what's going on. So those those are some complaints, and other complaints are part of our process. Is that these neighbors know that there's a short term rental because part of our process when they apply for a permit, we send out a notice before we even consider a, a decision on it. Is that we send out a notice to property owners within 300 feet of that proposed short term rental and let them know that. Mr. So-and-so is applying for a short-term rental. If you have any questions, concerns, please call us. So that's where we get a flood of calls. a site, like, you know, where they object to it, or they might say, oh yeah, I know they've been operating already. So we get gather more information and that's, that's helpful. But once it is approved, they know that the short-term rental is operating in their neighborhood. And so they say, well, who do I call if I have a question? And that's one of our ordinance regulations is that they actually have to have a site manager So we actually have to give them that information. It has to be public information. So they call Mr. Smith, they have a phone number and uh, the site manager takes care of it. The one criteria within our ordinance is that that site manager can't be out of town. They have to literally have ability to get to the site within 60 minutes. So if they live in Chico, that's not gonna work, right? You can't get to the site in 60 minutes. So it has to be somebody local. We have a lot of outside applicants that are running short-term rentals, but they hire some local site manager to manage. I would say predominantly, you know, I'm just going to throw out a number kind of out of touch with, uh, you know, without knowing what the status is, but, you know, probably about 90% of our short-term rentals are permitted. We don't have any issues because i think deep down at heart most people want to comply with the regulations because this is their business right they don't want to you know get run out of town have their business shut down so they all want to comply it's the other 10% that are you know not monitoring their sites very well you know they don't have a great site manager maybe right and maybe they're new to the business and they haven't quite learned the business yet so we there's a learning curve with those And um, and then maybe there are a few, you know, probably the two percent that just are bad operators. And those are the ones that we just say, you know, if it's bad enough, we can revoke that permit. And so it doesn't have to come up to that one year mark where we, you know, wait until their permit comes for renewal.
0: And Lily, what type of numbers are we looking at if you had to ballpark on how many short term rentals are are within city limits?
2: When we first started, when we start regulating this, it was around probably 90 short term rentals. And then we have right now issued permits that can operate just about 200 legal operating short-term rentals. If we hit our website today and the contractor that we use, if we look at that website, at any one time, there's hovering around 300 short-term rentals. So we know that there are 100 out there that's operating illegally. And so those are the ones that we go proactive and we send them letters. And we say, we know that you are operating a short-term rental. These are the regulations in the city of Reading, Please comply or further enforcement will proceed upon this property. So we do that proactively because we all want everyone to play by the same rules. And so they have to pay their, you know, I think it's about a thousand dollars for their permit every year if they want to continue to operate and pay their business license and their TOTs.
0: And, and what is that further enforcement you mentioned of those, you know, say you send a letter and, and they still aren't complying. What happens then?
2: If they um, ignore us, then we report them straight to our code enforcement division that's run out of our city attorney's office. And then they um, they can cite them actually. And I don't know what that citation is, but they can cite them for every day that they've rented the unit out. And we have ability to know what that is. So they might send them a citation and then it usually gets their attention typically because nobody likes to pay money. Right. And so they go, oh, I should have taken yours this earlier. And so then that's when they apply for the permit. Others might ignore us entirely. So code enforcement could say, all right, we're going to continue to cite you. Let's say the first time is just a one citation. The next time they might go back and look at the past quarter and see how many times they've rented it. And they could cite them for every single day. So it could be thousands of dollars. At some point, they take them to the administrative hearing board and And, you know, that that is a whole different department. But definitely, I think people do pay attention when the code enforcement division starts getting involved. Because from the planning, we're just sending out letters saying, oh, by the way, these are the rules. It's a really fine line sometimes because these apps are really user friendly for those operators. They can turn and turn off their short term rental, their advertising um, just by a finger of a thumb, slip on and off. And if they come into compliance one day, they say, oh, yeah, I shut down they, the next day they could just turn that right back on. And it's this cat and mouse thing that we play sometimes with them. But certainly once we get code enforcement involved, they, they tend to pay attention a little bit more.
1: And if we could just take kind of like a high level overview, maybe you can break down some misconceptions. What are the biggest misconceptions about ADUs and what are some big misconceptions about short-term rentals?
2: For ADU, I would say that most people would think that, oh, I can't fit an ADU on my property. And I would say that's true back in the day. But right now, the state regulation allows a building that's 16 feet or less to be as close as four feet to the property line. And so four feet is, you know, I'm tall, I'm five, five. So, you know, I mean, that's pretty short. So four feet, you can probably barely squeeze through, right? On a side property line. So I think that's the number one. Uh, Misconception is it could be a lot closer to a side property line than most people think. Um, As long as you stay to a lower height of a building and the ones, we have a few that has been already pre-approved that are 16 feet or lower. For misconception for short-term rental, I would think that they say that I got no one to call and you do, you can call the city and you can obtain also the site manager's information. So they, they complain that, hey, I can't call you because, you know, you're closed at 10 at night. There's no one to call. And so that's a misconception is that there is someone to call and immediately you can call the city and leave a message and tell them, tell us that you're having a problem with the site. But also the immediate need is I need this party shut down. There is someone to call. Right. And so not necessarily the police just say, oh, there's a party next door, unless it's really loud. and so forth. The police not going to show up right away. Right? They've got other issues that they've got to deal with. So I think that's the number one misconception of, of short-term
0: rentals. Lily, is there anything else that we haven't covered either for ADUs or short-term rentals that you want to ensure we, we discuss today?
2: Yeah, I think that all this information is, is online, but I do want to put a plug in for the ADUs, right? Because I know that they don't know that we have pre-approved plans. And so that's, it's online. The other thing that's available online is that on our GIS map, we also have the ability for um, you know anyone to look on our map to see if there's a short-term rental, where are they, and we have two types of short-term rental. I didn't mention the other short-term rental It's a hosted homestay, and a hosted homestay is not for the entire house. You can rent out up to two rooms, not more than 180 days total of the year but the room can be rented for less than 30 days as a short-term rental. Hosted homestay means there's a host in the house, which means that the property owner or the tenant that the property owner has rented the house to has permission to operate the hosted homestay. And obviously they have to have the parking on site. That still applies, but it is not the full house. It's only up to two bedrooms. So on that website, we've broken it down to whether it's a hosted homestay. I believe the color is blue. And a short-term rental, a full short-term rental is yellow. So you can see where all the short-term rentals are. On there even has, um, you know, some information about when it's going to expire. So I have one in my neighborhood. I didn't know. I was looking on the map and there it is. Oh, it expires August, 2022. So, and I might say, oh, they've been a horrible operator. I know the permit's going to come up. I'm going to report to the city X, Y, and Z. So those are things that even an outsider across the world can monitor because it's on on our GIS.